This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome back to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. You're with me, Greg Nicholson. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in studio, but we're finally back, and I've got a great guest for you today. If you were following the news last week, you might have seen the landmark judgment on the Ahmed, Ahmed Timur case. Uh, he was an activist, an SACP leader, an anti-apartheid activist, who was killed in 1971 by the security, security branch of the apartheid uh, forces. And the judgment last week, finally, after almost 50 years, overturned a 1972 inquiry finding that he actually committed suicide, jumping from the 10th floor of uh, Johannesburg's notorious John Forster prison, or John Forster police station. And a man who's been very central to this case joins me in the studio today. His name is um, Imtiaz Kaji. How are you, Imtiaz? Fine, things. How are you, Greg? Very well, thank you. Imtiaz is um, Timur's nephew. He has been working for almost 20 years, I would say, uh, trying to get this judgment overturned, trying to get justice for his family, as well as other victims of apartheid who were killed uh, uh, by police while they were in detention. He's also put a book out on, on the matter called Timur, A Quest for Justice. Now, Imtiaz, do you mind if we just go back a little bit in history? Sure. No you were problem. born in 1966. <laughs> <laughs> and <long> back, yeah. <laughs> your uncle, your uncle Ahmed was um, killed in 1971, as I mentioned. Can you just tell me a little bit about um, when you were growing up? Where, what were the sort of first memories you had of your uncle? Or, or do you remember actually meeting him? Do you remember hearing your parents talk about him when you were a boy? Look, uh, my, my late mother and uh, Uncle Ahmed were brother and sisters. And uh, my mother was living in, in Pumalanga, in Standerton, the former southeastern Transvaal. And I have uh, very vivid memories of uh, spending some time with him. Um, I would go with him to the Rodeport Club and I would watch him swim. Um, he would take me around with him in the yellow Anglia, which he was driving around with. And this is the same Anglia in which he got detained at a police roadblock. Um, and then um, he would take me with to Mrs. Amina Desai's residence. And Mrs. Desai was uh, uh, sentenced to five years imprisonment because uh, she had allowed Uncle Ahmed uh, to use her home to do his political work. So those are the memories that I have, Greg. And then coming from Standerton to Rodeport, because that's where my grandparents lived, uh, in the middle of the evening, and uh, I can still picture the family sitting in the kitchen around the small table, um, all whispering to each other And I heard this knock on the door And when I looked again I saw this huge uh, security branch man In uh, in plain clothes Walking around the flat um, And subsequent to that I have an image of my grandmother Standing at the balcony flat On the day of the funeral um, and then, uh, as the years went on, uh, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And with my grandfather, I would go to the cemetery, I would go to my uncle's grave, where we would recite our prayers. And when I would come back, my grandmother would always ask me to say, did you pray for your uncle? And I said, no, yes, ma, I, you know, I prayed for him. But the turning point came in 1978, in January, when I was 12 years old. And my grandmother notified my mom telephonically that my other uncle, Mohammed, had, uh, she had been to his room in the morning because he lived in the outbuilding and his, his, his bed was neatly made and he was not in his room. 
And a few days later, we then read in the newspapers that he had gone into exile. Now, over the years, during the school holidays, my younger sister and I spent a lot of time with him. But it became very evident to me that uh, he had to be indoors by a particular time. Uh, he, could, he was not allowed visitors. Um, family weddings he could not attend. And all of this played in my mind that, uh, you know, why would his uh, democratic rights be infringed? Uh, and it obviously made sense because, you know, he was, he was banned and he was under house arrest. So he could go to work in the morning, but he had to be indoors at a particular time. So when I then hear the news that he's now gone into exile, I start probing. And my mom is very reluctant to speak about it. Uh, because she's lost her one son, her brother, it's murdered in police. Now we can say murdered in police detention, and the other brother is in exile. So when I spend time with my grandparents, specifically my grandmother, I probe her as a young teenager to say, "Ma, tell me what had happened." And she would say, "But why do you want to know?" I said, "No, no, I just want to know about my late uncle." Mm. And then she would narrate to me. Did she tell stories? Um so as it came up in court um i'm sure i'm sure our listeners would know that the 1972 inquiry was reopened and i think it lasted from june till till now the judgment was delivered yes. in just just last week yeah. but did your family tell stories about your un- uncle ahmed as a person we know he yes. was arrested for allegedly planning to distribute um anti-apartheid leaflets yes. did they did they tell stories of what he was like as a young yes. man Yes, I mean, I can narrate one uh, one incident with you, Greg, and with the viewers out there and the listeners out there. Uh, so in 1971, I'm five years old, and my mother goes to hospital because uh, she's expecting her second child. And like any five-year-old, I'm, I'm crying for my mom. And this is something that my grandmother narrates to me. And here comes Uncle Ahmed, uh, and he's explaining to me that it's not necessary for me to cry because my mom's gone to hospital, and I'll be getting either a brother or a sister. And she finds it completely remarkable, and she actually asks him, but how can you explain to a five-year-old as to where his mom is? And he says, no, no, you know, he's got to know as to what is happening. You know, so that's just one example that, you know, he, he functioned at a completely different level. Mm. I mean, he loved life. He was an educator. He had a special bond with his students. Um, they lived in an apartment, uh, in a flat. The neighbors, the kids all knew him. I actually heard that one of the kids uh, reminded me that on the day of his arrest or sometime in that proximity, my uncle actually told him that he was going to take him to the zoo for his birthday party. You know, so he had a natural uh, instinct of, 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 of winning people over. As an educator, with family, with neighbors, with kids. And I think this was all part of a, a perfect profile, you know, for him to do underground work. That he could motivate and convince people that, look, you know, you need to do, constructively do something to fight against, against this illegitimate regime. And hence, even his students, he polit- politicized them in the form of history lessons. So, so, so he had all the tenets of somebody who, very compassionate, um, feeling for the marginalized and the oppressed, not just the majority African population in the country, but even in, in, in the small town of Rudapur. So, for example, you have a club, and this club, his uh, membership is restricted to Muslims only. And he stands up with a friend of his and says, no, no, it, it, it cannot be an exclusive club for Muslims. And we're talking in the 60s. 
He says it must be made open to all races. You know, so for, from all accounts uh, that I, I, I got from my late mum and my maternal grandparents who are both late, that he had a total compassion for life. Total compassion for life, always felt for the marginalized and the oppressed. And uh, he always reminded my mum, which she then transferred over to me, the words he would use is that you must always keep your heart clean. And I struggled to understand as a teenager, but how do you keep your heart clean? And he simply meant that you should not hold any animosity against anybody else. You know, so these are the fond memories that I have of my late mum and my maternal grandparents, specifically my grandmother, talking about him. He was planning to get married, or was he? He had a. He wasn't. No, I must no, have confused no, no, that. No, no. Look, look, look. In 1966, he mm. leaves South Africa. So mm-hmm. um, he went he to was it London and Moscow. Yes, he completes his schooling, um, uh, then goes to teachers' training college, teaches for a short period. December 66 goes to London. Before he goes to London, he completes the pilgrimage, the the Hajj, which is compulsory for Muslims. Short stay in Egypt, then goes to the United Kingdom, where he then falls in love with an Italian woman, Ruth Longoni. Continues teaching, and now he's teaching uh, immigrants from sub-Saharan continent. So clearly the passion of of, of Mm. educating and teaching. Falls in love, madly in love with Ruth. Then a decision gets taken that he must go to the Soviet Union for political training for a period of nine months. And he's accompanied by Ann Nicholson and, and our former president, Tavumbeki. He then comes back and a decision gets taken by the leadership in, in London, the Communist Party leadership, that he needs to return to South Africa to do underground work. So he ends this love relationship with Ruth, you know, to go back to the country to do underground work. So when he returns, he goes back to teaching lives with his parents up till the time of his, uh, of his murder, never married, no kids, and at the tender age of 29, he's taken away from us. Do you remember how it felt as a, as a young boy and a young man either reading these press clippings about what, what had happened or what was reported to have happened to, to your uncle or hearing the, hearing the different murmurings and different stories from, from family members and friends? Did it sink in then actually what had happened to your uncle? Look, the newspaper cuttings were a very critical portion of my understanding of what had transpired. So you listen to my grandmother, obviously as a broken mother, sharing her last moments and the subsequent events from his arrest. But the newspaper cuttings give me an opportunity to try and unpack. So as a 14, 15-year-old, there's no internet, there's no Google, there's no research material. Uh, Publications are banned. Uh, individuals within family circles are all afraid of even mentioning the name of the ANC and political leaders. So access to material is a major challenge. And I unpacked this particular picture in my own mind. Today we've got, uh, we've got analytical tools and we've got applications. You've got nothing at that particular stage. So mentally I processed the story. And then listening to my grandmother, listening to the murmurings at the same time, trying to put all these names together in sort of a uh, analytical picture, in a picture, to try and understand and unpack as to what to transpire. But it was very clear, based on the newspaper reports and the cuttings, and my numerous encounters and my conversations with my grandmother, that there were many, many unanswered questions. It was not just a straightforward issue of, of, of him committing suicide. The family never believed that from the onset. But there were always murmurings that... Uh, possibility of him being betrayed by informants within the community, 
Um, and remember, we're talking, I'm, I'm looking at the late 70s, early 80s, where there's a political uprising in the country. Uh, and you me as a youngster trying to unpack and trying to understand. I have no avenue of, of, of uh, discussing and engaging on this particular matter because there's nobody around. People are totally terrified of just talking about this particular issue. And in my mind, mentally, I, you know, I pierce, I pierce this, uh, this picture together. So, uh, I, I, I have all these thoughts and ideas. On the one hand, trying to understand this uncle. On the other hand, reading the cuttings. Other hand, reading all these uh, statements made by the security branch officers and trying to pierce all of this together. And taking it into context of what's un- of, of what's unfolding in the country at that time. I'm interested in that point as the, I guess for our younger generation like me and some of our listeners, you come from one of many families who went through a level of trauma and pain that some others don't know. Um, but how does the family deal with that? Is it something that's spoken about and? Always there with you, or is it more of a, a, I guess, a scar that's sort of it's there, but it's a scar under your shirt that we're not actually talk, talking about. Look, I must be very honest with you, Greg. Um, as a as a youngster and as a teenager, uh, and coming from a privileged family, there was no shortage of anything in my life. The holidays were there, the clothes were there, the tri- the motor vehicles were there, and 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 we were fortunate, we were blessed that. All our basic necessities were were given on a golden platter to me. So I had absolutely no reason of ever complaining about life, um, unlike many, many others in the country. So there was no reason for me to say that I'm angry or I'm bitter because I'm deprived. Yes, deprived uh, because we come from a sporting family, deprived of sporting opportunities, which really impacted on me because there was no level of growth at that particular time in the 80s. So that's a dawning uh, awakening that uh, you know you you cannot represent your 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 local community or your province or your or your or your country at the time uh, because the the doors of, uh, of 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 expansion were simply closed because of the, the men in which apartheid was structured. So I have everything at at my disposal, and yet I'm very angry. I cannot focus going to school because I cannot understand. As a 14, 15 year old, I need to go to school. I need to, I, I need to focus on the history of uh, Jan van Riebeck. Um, and I need to educate myself. Uh, and I don't see any substance and value in me educating myself. I mean, I simply went to school to, to wait for the weekend because I was playing soccer and cricket over the weekend. And that's why I had to kill time from a Monday to Friday. Mm. <laughs> but I had to go to school because I couldn't sit at home. So, there was no shortage of anything in our home. But uh, within the family, obviously my grandparents are broken. My mother is devastated. My uncles are all quiet. There's no psychologists or counselors today or clinical psychologists that one could phone or, or could download on Google to say, how do you deal? Because firstly, they never believed in, uh, in, in depression, never believed in trauma. And this is what they had lived. And... I think for me it was a calling because all my other cousins, uh, blood relation to Uncle Ahmed, nephews and nieces, continued with their lives like normal. But I, from a very tender age, especially from 12, was not normal. 
So, so it had a huge impact on me because it influenced my political thinking. Um, and I have an additional challenge because I'm, 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 I'm staying in a small town in southeastern Transvaal. There's no political avenues. There's no political discussions. It's completely taboo to talk about, even mention this. And my dad, uh, as a 15-year-old, threatens me <laughs> because I'd given a political speech in school. And he tells me that – and and <laughs> – and the, the teacher that lives two doors away from us is a police reservist. And the word comes to my dad to say, look, your son is talking about politics. And, you know, if he continues in this vein, you know, he's, he's going to get into trouble. And my dad's response is, well, I'll send you back to India because that's where we came from. So, so there's no avenues to explore and to discuss because it's close within the family. We've lost a, a, a loved one. Another one is in exile. And here you coming as a 15-year-old and you're stoking this fire that you expect us to relive. So, 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 so for me personally, it tormented me. So all the luxuries and the joys of being a teenager and of, being, of misbehaving and of being mischievous, I, I don't explore that because I, I, I don't see the need for me to enjoy life. I mean, in those particular days, at the end of a term or the end of the year, you'd have a school party. And everybody's celebrating because the year is coming to an end. And I sit in process in my mind. I said, but what's there for me to celebrate? I have an uncle that's killed. I have another uncle that's in exile. I see the political uprising in the country, in the town, in the local township as to where we're living. And I'm expected to be celebrating. So I, I, I really grappled with that. But people in the family move on and they mourn in different, in, in, in silent ways. Uh, some of the view that look, this is the fate of God. And we need to accept it and we need to move on. So everybody's got their own particular ways of, and when I look at my journey of obviously of where I started of not wanting to go to school and, and the last week with the finding, in my mind, I'm then convinced that, you know, I, I see my life and my journey as a calling that I've been specifically sent, you know, to, to, to unpack and unearth the, the life of my beloved uncle. Your own activism increased in your own sort of various ways in the late 80s and early 90s. And you've spoken before on a number of platforms about how on a day or at a time in 1996 when your grandmother uh, testified at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about what happened to Ahmed Timor, her son, you decided then and there that you were going to do something about this. Are you able to just take us back to what happened there at the TRC? What did you see that changed your life so fundamentally? Look, I had numerous discussions with her on this matter. And when she was approached that uh, she needs to testify, she refused. She says, but uh, why should I go and testify? Why should I go and relive? My math serves me correct over 25 years later, from 71 to, to 96. Why should I go and relive? You know, what, are, what are the benefits? I mean, what's the need for me to do so? And the family failed to convince her. And when I approached her, because I think of the special bond that we had, I said, look, Ma, it's important. It's important for you and the country to know. So unlike, Greg, our numerous other conversations in the comfort of her lounge that we used to have, she basically relived. But this in the, in the, in a TRC setting, in front of a commission, in front of a gallery. And I think for me, perhaps it was the setup. It was a setup. It was the fact of looking at the TRC commissioners. I don't know. It was the environment. But when I heard her speak, 
for the first time I broke down. Unlike all the other discussions we had. But when I, when for, I heard her testify. For the first time you ever broke down about your uncle's death or well, every, did, everything that your family I, went through. Yeah, I did break down later. But this was the first time from based on the numerous conversations that I had with her that I had to hold back my tears and I was, I was breathless. So I think it was perhaps the environment and the context under which she was narrating this particular uh, horrendous story of her life of losing her beloved son. So as I'm holding back my tears and out of breath, mentally I make a note and I say, from this day onwards, the 30th of April 1996, I am now going to constructively do something to preserve my uncle's legacy. Not sure... Uncertain as to what path it's going to take. Uh, remember, I've got no academic qualifications. I've got no resources. I've got no funders. I've got nobody. And I start this particular process to say I'm going to start writing. So I go back to the newspaper cuttings and I start piercing a picture together. Did you talk to your grandmother about this at the time? Not really. I think it was a mental thing. It was an early stage because she testified, I think it was in April 1996, and in February 1997, she passed on. So immediately after she testified, her health just completely deteriorated, completely. And she just went on a downhill slope um, and very painful to watch. So in February 1997, she passes on. I continue with my research. I think it's March 1999. Um, President Mandela renames the Azadwal Secondary School to the Amatimol Secondary School. Because my grandmother had made a number of requests to the TRC. Apart from uh, reliving what had transpired to her son, she had requested um, that the school be renamed after him and that she wanted to know what had really happened to him and who was responsible for his death. So in 1999, there's a huge function. President Mandela comes and renames the school. And I sit in the audience like any other like any other. Uh, family member and uh, a resident of that particular community. And again, I hear Madiba paying a glowing tribute to my uncle. So if ever I needed uh, reaffirmation or convincing, not that I needed it, but again, when, when, when one goes back and looks at the timing of it, it was as if it was just sent to me to say, you know, that this was a remarkable man. And I just continued this particular process of uh, conducting my research. In 2001, the 30th of January, I then go to the former minister in the presidency, Isu Pahad. And if anybody knows him, the first question he asks, who are you? What are you going to be doing? Are you serious about this particular issue? You know, in, in, in the tone that only Isu, Isu Pahad can, uh, can convey. And I said, no, no, minister, I'm, uh, this is who I am. This is what I've done because at that particular stage, Greg, I had my PowerPoint presentations and I had a draft manuscript. And I think when he looked through it for the first time, you know, he saw that I was not just coming and talking, that I had already done a lot of work, uh, which he was very impressed with. And he stated, um, if you prepare to work, I will assemble a team and this team will assist you and guide you and we will, and we will put a manuscript together. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Daily Maverick Show. We're speaking to Imtiaz Kaji, uh, Ahmed Timol's nephew. Um, as many of you would know, Timol's um, inquest, 1972 inquest, was overturned last week by the Pretoria High Court. 
where the suicide was actually ruled that he was murdered. He was killed by the the security branch policeman after being tortured, interrogated. A quick, quick uh, mention, I have to say, for our, our newsletters. You can sign up to any Daily Maverick newsletters on the website if you just scroll down there. We've got morning, afternoon newsletters where you can find out the latest news, both local and international. Now our newsletters are run by Touchbase Pro. You can check out www.touchbasepro.com and with a click, a quick click of the button, they can show you how to use the system. In 20 minutes, you can sign up without a commitment and the demo is tailored to your company, uh, your brand and your needs. Now, MTLs, back to you. You went through this, you and your family went through this painful TRC process and it's been over 20 years since the TRC started and a lot of people now talk about the failures of the TRC and perhaps how it whitewashed any chance for the country to achieve justice for for the perpetrators of hateful and violent crimes during apartheid. But we know that I think it's something like around 300 people uh, weren't grant, granted amnesty and, and, and could have been charges, could have been laid against them for the crimes they committed during apartheid. Why do you think that the MPA decided to prosecute, let's say, perpetrators for, so so the, the men who killed, interrogated, tortured your uncle didn't appear at the TRC? Why do you think that the MPA, I think they've only prosecuted a handful of these perpetrators? You see, I've got to put this in context. So obviously I appear in 1996. This is where my journey officially commences. And it only strikes me a few years later. But why were they not ever subpoenaed? Hmm. Because all of them were living. And there was no, none of them were ever subpoenaed uh, because that would have been the perfect platform, uh, you know, for them to have given their version of events. Hmm. So there's an opportunity that's, that's lost. In 2002, I write to the National Prosecution Authority. I had some information that I had come to my uh, attention, and I asked them to investigate further. And they simply came back and stated that, look, uh, the information was not, uh, or they were not successful in following up on that information. Um, 2005, I have a telephonic conversation with one of the interrogators who was instrumental in, in, in interrogating my uncle. And what's remarkable, Greg, especially now with the judgment that has been made, he clearly mentioned to me, he says, and we had a conversation in Afrikaans, obviously, he says, but what do you want from me? Look at the judgment of 1972 and I'm cleared. He he committed suicide. Um, Your grandparents came with a pack of lies in court that that your uncle was ever tortured. There was no reason for me to have applied for amnesty. So what do you want from me? And uh, after three d- different telephonic conversations, he then threatened me that he was going to get court court order against me, you know, for continuing to, ha- to, 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 to harass him. Now, the point I'm making is that these were perfect opportunities because all of them were alive at that particular time. You can be rest assured in 1996, they must have witnessed my grandmother testify. And they never came to apply for amnesty, and the TRC never subpoenaed them. And initially, I was very critical of the TRC. But then, and obviously with a lot of gray hair that then emerges on a person's head, and you become much wiser, you then understand that the TRC made numerous recommendations for government of the day to follow through. 
because the TRC had their own challenges, um, issues of capacity of resources. In the Timor matter, there was an investigator that was assigned, PSP Ho. Yeah. He had one meeting with Rodriguez, who who is now to be charged for uh, for murder. It's Mr. Jao Rodriguez, Joe Rodriguez who, yes. who the court found last court, week exactly. that he should be charged should be for charged. accessory to murder after exactly. the fact, as well as perjury, I understand. Exactly. So Pierce has one 20-minute consultation with him, and he tells Pierce he needs a lawyer present. Pierce then resigns from the TRC, and the matters never follow through. So the Timor case, like many, many other cases, were then handed over to the National Prosecution Authority to follow through once the TRC had disbanded. So those were opportunities that were lost. My correspondence to them in 2002 was again another perfect platform. Apart from the new evidence that I had made available to them, they could have gone in and interviewed all the other security branch officers, again, who, who were all living. So again, another opportunity that was lost. And hence today we have to ask the question, that why was it that all these matters were not pursued. I understand and accept the fact that the TRC had limitations and the TRC was an initial phase of dealing with these issues and they were handed over to government of the day to follow them through. And this particular inquest has just demonstrated that uh, if this was done timelessly, we would have got more answers. Because from a family perspective, we've been very consistent and clear about this, Greg. It has never been an issue of prosecuting security branch officers, having them sentenced, having Nuremberg trials, um, and, and, and seeing them behind bars. Because we understand as a family and as political activists that uh, there was a war. I mean, there was conflict. There was a war unfolding in the country. There were perpetrators. There were victims. And the entire principle of this negotiated settlement was on the basis that there would be a reconciliation process. There had to be give and take. And the TRC was perfectly set up for that, for people to come and make full disclosures. And as a family, up till the inquest, our doors were always open. And we expected Joao Rodriguez, Neville Else, and Seth's sons to make full disclosures. Who were, as, as we mentioned, Rodriguez before, the other men were the last, the men who interrogated and tortured uh, Mr. Tim. Yeah. So, so from a family perspective, we were very clear because we wanted answers. What were the circumstances that led to my uncle's death? Now we can say with his murder, uh, because we never believed the police version of events. And we would have demonstrated not just to them, but to the country as a whole and to the world at large that it is possible. After going through this journey, you know, for us to come together and 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 set up a perfect platform to take the country forward. Do you have theories, or do you have any explanations as to why the National Prosecuting Authority Authority did not take these issues forward? I understand they have a unit. I think it's the Priority Crimes Litigation Unit um, that is tasked to take some of these issues forward. We've also seen an affidavit from former National Director of Public Prosecutions, Vusi Pukoli, saying that it looked like he was suspended because he actually wanted to take some of these some of these apartheid era crimes on board. Is that what you believe? Do you think there were political interventions or? There can be no other explanation, Greg, because, you know, the logical explanation would be that if you're a liberation movement and the oldest liberation movement in the African continent, when you come into a position of political power, the first thing that you would do is you'd restore the honor and dignity of all your fallen heroes and heroine. 
And the best way to do that is to get answers and closures as to what really happened to them. So that's the most logical understanding, that it would be instinctive for you and your moral responsibility as former freedom fighters to make sure that you, you, you preserve their, their legacy and their honor and their dignity. And I think what it transpired is my own personal perspective is that with all the challenges already from 2000 that the country had faced, they'd abdicated their responsibility. Now, yes, we have numerous challenges and the question is often asked, but why now? What do you hope to accomplish? Why waste state resources when you've got so many other challenges and so many other problems that you've got to deal with? But as a nation and as a country, we cannot move forward if you don't deal with your issues of the past. And the Timor matter, like you correctly stated, is one of thousands of others throughout the length and breadth of this country where people have not found closure, people have, don't have answers. And in our particular matter, we've never sought financial compensation because he didn't have a wife, uh, he didn't have kids because he was taken away at that tender age. And in other families, it's a different scenario. They lost breadwinners and hence they seek financial compensation. And they're entitled to, uh, you know, to request uh, financial compensation. Now we're starting to run out of time a little bit, so we actually better get on to last week's judgment. You've had a few days to process it now, and I'd imagine you might have read it a couple of times, and you've probably been speaking to to other other activists and colleagues that you've been working with on these issues. A few days later, what are the key takeaways? What sinks in most for you from from the judgment uh, delivered by Judge uh, Billy Motley? Look, we had never doubted that my uncle never committed suicide, but even during the inquest proceedings, the reopening proceedings, one was cautiously optimistic. But you have to wait for processes to unfold. So I think the immediate response is, is, is a sense of relief to say that we've been vindicated and we've got the findings reversed. And hence, we can say today that he didn't commit suicide, that he was murdered. So I think that's, 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 that's highly significant. The fact that uh, Rodriguez's sons and else need to be investigated. And again, there's another opportunity. Well, I, I cannot speak from a legal perspective what the ramifications would be. But do they want to continue with their versions of events from 1971? Or do they finally want to come clean and make full disclosures? Because for us, yes, the judgment is a victory. But at the same time, uh, it's a loss to us because they could have shed light as to what really transpired. And this was a perfect platform because there was compelling evidence that the police version of events could have never been correct. And, and for those who didn't follow the judgment of the proceedings very closely, uh, these security branch officers maintained their stories that they didn't know anything about torture except for what was perhaps reported in the media or allegations when... The judgment very clearly stated that torture was commonplace yeah. and, and brutality in detention was the, the tactic order of, the, of day. the day. Order of the day. So, so bitterly disappointed at that particular aspect because, you know, again, they are 78, 18, 82 years old. And what a perfect platform to come clean, to cleanse their own conscience, and more importantly, set a precedent for this country that if we could resolve this amicably, and assist one family in finding closure, surely, you know, we can, we, we can assist many, many others. On that, I think you can probably tell me the statistics a little bit better, but I think it was from the 1960s until 1990 or 94, there's an estimated at least 72 political, political activists that died in detention. 
And there's already talk of using this example of this very groundbreaking example of reopening an inquest to look into many other of these matters. People are talking about the death of um, unionist and anti-apartheid activist Neil Agate, talking about the Matthews Mabalane case, talking even about uh, reopening Steve Biko's um, um, inquest and trying to overturn some of these findings, perhaps trying to hold some people accountable. And I know that's where you and a lot of other activists and, and organizers are pushing, but I wonder a little bit that it took you so long. It took you 20 years and you faced such resistance from the NPA. We've also talked about the political resistance that seems to be in place. How confident can we be that some of these other issues will come up just like the Timolinko inquest has? Look, I think Kosinati Biko's response at the press conference was very clear, that we should not just see it from an individual family's perspective, but we should confront this head-on as a country, that there has to be a political will in the country. Because you can imagine if each individual family which does not have capacity and resources to go through this particular journey, it's not going to take us forward. So there has to be a political will, and government cannot abdicate its responsibility to ensure that there's capacity and resources made available in ensuring that these particular families find closure. Do you think we have such political leadership in the country at the moment? Look, currently it's very difficult to answer because obviously the priorities are in a whole range of different areas. But that cannot justify the the, the abdication of their responsibilities. And this particular inquest and judgment should give families hope and hopefully not allow a similar situation of 20 years to proceed, you know, for them to get closure. Because we've set the benchmark, we've set the president, but the, the key, the key word from this is hope. And that's all, that's all that we can, uh, you know, we can share with the, with the rest of the country. One, Interesting response I've seen from, from Friday's ruling is that it's not just the families, um, involved that want hope. It seems like much of the country really welcomed this judgment and they also want hope that we can find truth and closure about the crimes and the brutalities of the past. Have you seen the same sort of response? Most certainly, Greg. Uh, everybody needs closure, which is very critical, uh, you know, for us to move forward. But I think more importantly, by us going back to these unresolved issues of the past should inspire us to do the right things today, starting from political leadership. That if young men and women like Ahmed Timo at the age of 25 had sacrificed their lives, like Matthews Mabilani and thousands of others, then the responsibility on political leaderships is to ensure that the struggle continues. The political landscape has changed, but the struggle is far from over because the principles remain. The housing requirements, unemployment levels, the health crisis, the educational system, and the list just goes on. And the same comrades that were freedom fighters are now in the corridors of power. So the struggle is not over. And it cannot be an issue of us now seeking entitlement that because we've lost loved ones, we we should be financially compensated for it. And there's a sense of entitlement. It has to be the contrary, that we should we should increase and intensify our efforts from a position of political power in ensuring that the same principles that Ahmed Timol and Matthew Mabilani and Neil Agat and Imam Harun were all striving for is actually seen as a real reality. There seems to be quite a bit of work going on from different uh, different views. I know we've been publishing some of these Open Secrets articles from, from Henny Van Furen and his team who recently put out the book Apartheid Guns and Money. And there's other different initiatives too as, as well as what you've been doing. 
in terms of really starting to ask some of the hard questions that perhaps were swept a little bit under the rug or, or we were told that we should actually leave these behind and, and let's focus on, on the new South Africa and the new era. Can you just tell me a little bit about the importance of actually interrogating our past and talking about it to ensuring that we're taking the right sort of path towards hopefully one day achieving a healthy democracy? No, no, it, it makes perfect sense. It's an excellent question. Because if we don't tackle it from that perspective, it's an issue of just us living in the past with no context. But us bringing out the past and talking about our our tragic history and uh, bringing out the the pain and the tears. I mean, I, I, I spoke to the wife of the late Suleiman Babla Saluji, who died in 1964, and she told me she went into a depression. So it cannot just be about talking with no context. The past... And our history and the sacrifices should shape us today in ensuring that we steer the country in the right direction. And with all the challenges that we are facing currently, I think the ruling of this particular judgment is perfect. If if the country as a whole cannot, and politicians as a whole, today cannot understand, or, or if they ever needed a grim reminder, then the ruling of Judge Billy Motley last week is divine intervention. Absolutely divine. That, that should bring back our sense of responsibility because we've, we've, we've simply forgotten. We've abdicated our responsibility and forgotten and we've gone on to this thing of entitlement, of not being accountable and forgetting our root principles which were enshrined way back decades ago. And all that has changed is we've moved from a freedom fighter and from a liberation movement to the corridors of power. So the principles cannot be divided. They cannot just be shredded away to say, you know, the principles have changed. The landscape in the country globally has changed. But the moral responsibility of what people had, 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 had sacrificed their lives for remained consistent. So, so this particular ruling is it's absolutely perfect. And we're hoping that it will stimulate people to make sure that they come back to the principles on which they the same principles that they would given their lives for. And now they're in, they are appointed in a position of political power, that this will be a grim reminder to them that they should not forget their, their, their principles. Empty Asgaji, thank you so much for joining us and sharing what I'm sure must at times be painful memories about what's happened to you and your family, as well as unpacking the recent judgment on the death of your, your uncle, um, activist Ahmed Timol. We hope to have you in studio one day again soon. Perhaps the next time another inquest comes up. Or the publication of my second book. That would be fantastic. When's, I, I heard you're going to look into some of the other details about your uncle's arrest. Yes. Look, I mean, I've, I've been working on my second manuscript and the plan is to, is to launch it in October next year. And we know that, as you mentioned before, there's questions of betrayal, questions of alliances, which also influence our, our, um, present, present day circumstances and politics. No, so. most, most certainly. It's not just issues of the past. It's all linked to contemporary South Africa. You've been listening to The Daily Maverick Show. Subscribe, tune in um, again next week and share far and wide. Thank you very much for listening. This is cliffcentral.com.